0: Part 2 of The Well of Penmorpha by Elizabeth Gaskell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, A Weekly Journal number 35, Saturday, November twenty-third, 1850 Chapter 2 Nest revived during the warm summer weather. Edward came to see her and stayed the allotted quarter of an hour, but he dared not look her in the face. She was indeed a cripple. One leg was much shorter than the other, and she halted on a crutch. Her face, formerly so brilliant in colour, was wan and pale with suffering. The bright roses were gone, never to return. Her large eyes were sunk deep down into their hollow cavernous sockets, but the light was in them still when Edward came. Her mother dreaded her returning strength, dreaded yet desired it, for the heavy burden of her secret was most oppressive at times, and she thought Edward was beginning to weary of his enforced attentions. One October evening she told her the truth. She even compelled her rebellious heart to take the cold, reasoning side of the question, and she told her child that her disabled frame was a disqualification for ever becoming a farmer's wife. She spoke hardly because her inner agony and sympathy was such She dared not trust herself to express the feelings that were rending her. But Ness turned away from cold reason. She revolted from her mother. She revolted from the world. She bound her sorrow tight up in her breast to corrode and fester there. Night after night her mother heard her cries and moans, more pitiful by far than those wrung from her by bodily pain a year before. And night after night, if her mother spoke to soothe, She proudly denied the existence of any pain, but what was physical and consequent upon her accidents. If she would but open her sore heart to me, to me, her mother, Eleanor wailed forth in prayer to God, I would be content. Once it was enough to have my nest all my own. Then came love, and I knew it would never be as before. And then I thought the grief I felt when Edward spoke to me was as sharp a sorrow as could be. But this present grief, O Lord, my God, is worst of all, and Thou only, Thou canst help." When Nest grew as strong as she was ever likely to be on earth, she was anxious to have as much labour as she could bear. She would not allow her mother to spare her anything. Hard work, bodily fatigue, she seemed to crave. She was glad when she was stunned by exhaustion into a dull insensibility of feeling. She was almost fierce when her mother, in those first months of convalescence, performed the household tasks which had formerly been hers, but she shrank from going out of doors. Her mother thought that she was unwilling to expose her changed appearance to the neighbour's remarks, but Nest was not afraid of that. She was afraid of their pity as being one deserted and cast off. If Eleanor gave way before her daughter's imperiousness and sat by while Nest tore about her work with the vehemence of a bitter heart, Eleanor could have cried, but she durst not. Tears or any mark of commiseration irritated the crippled girl so much she even drew away from caresses. Everything was to go on as it had been before she had known Edward, and so it did, outwardly, but they trod carefully, as if the ground on which they moved was hollow, deceptive. There was no more careless ease. Every word was guarded, and every action planned. It was a dreary life to both. Once Eleanor brought in a little baby, a neighbour's child, to try and tempt Ness out of herself by her old love of children. Ness's pale face flushed as she saw the innocent child in her mother's arms, and for a moment she made as if she would have taken it, but then she turned away and hid her face behind her apron and murmured, I shall never have a child to lie in my breast and call me mother. In a minute she arose with compressed and tightened lips and went about her household work without her noticing the cooing baby again, till Mrs Gwynne, heartsick at the failure of her little plan, took it back to its parents. One day the news ran through Penmorpha, That Edward Williams was about to be married. Eleanor had long expected this intelligence. It came upon her like no new thing, but it was the filling up of her cup of woe. She could not tell Nest. She sat listlessly in the house, and dreaded that each neighbour who came in would speak about the village news. At last someone did. Nest looked around from her employment, and talked of the event with a kind of cheerful curiosity as to the particulars, which made her informant go away and tell others that Nest had quite left off caring for Edward Williams. But when the door was shut, and Eleanor and she were left alone, Nest came and stood before her weeping mother like a stern accuser. Mother, why did you not let me die? Why did you keep me alive for this? Eleanor could not speak, but she put her arms out towards her girl. Nest turned away, and Eleanor cried aloud in her soreness of spirit. Nest came again. Mother, I was wrong. You did your best. I don't know how it is. I'm so hard and cold. I wish I had died when I was a girl and had a feeling heart. Don't speak so, my child. God has afflicted you sore, and your hardness of heart is but for a time. Wait a little. Don't reproach yourself, my poor nest. I understand your ways. I don't mind them, love. The feeling heart will come back to you in time. Anyways, don't think you're grieving me, because, love, that may sting you when I'm gone, and I'm not grieved, my darling. Most times we're very cheerful, I think. After this, mother and child were drawn more together but Eleanor had received her death from these sorrowful, hurrying events. She did not conceal the truth from herself, nor did she pray to live as some months ago she had done for her child's sake. She had found out that she had no power to console the poor wounded heart. It seemed to her as if her prayers had been of no avail, and then she blamed herself for this thought. There are many Methodist preachers in this part of Wales, There was a certain old man named David Hughes who was held in peculiar reverence because he had known the great John Wesley. He had been captain of a Carnarvon slate vessel. He had traded in the Mediterranean and had seen strange sights. In those early days, to use his own expression, he had lived without God in the world, but he went to mock John Wesley and was converted by the white-haired patriarch and remained to pray. Afterwards he became one of the earnest, self-denying, much-abused band of itinerant preachers, who went forth under Wesley's direction to spread abroad a more earnest and practical spirit of religion. His rambles and troubles were of use to him. They extended his knowledge of the circumstances in which men are sometimes placed, and enlarged his sympathy with the tried and tempted. His sympathy, combined with the thoughtful experience of fourscore years, made him cognizant of many of the strange secrets of humanity, and when younger preachers upbraided the hard hearts they met with and despaired of the sinners, he suffered long and was kind. When Eleanor Gwynne lay low on her deathbed, David Hughes came to Penmorpha. He knew her history and sought her out. To him she imparted the feelings I have described. I have lost my faith, David. The tempter has come and I have yielded, I doubt if my prayers have been heard. Day and night have I prayed that I might comfort my child in her great sorrow, but God has not heard me. She has turned away from me and refused my poor love. I wish to die now, but I have lost my faith and have no more pleasure in the thought of going to God. What must I do, David?' She hung upon his answer, and it was long in coming. "'I am weary of earth,' said she mournfully. And can I find rest in death, even leaving my child desolate and broken-hearted? Eleanor, said David, where you go, all things will be made clear, and you will learn to thank God for the end of what now seems grievous and heavy to be borne. Do you think your agony has been greater than the awful agony in the garden, or your prayers more earnest than that which he prayed in that hour when the great drops of blood ran down his face like sweat? We know that God heard him, although no answer came to him through the dread silence of that night. Good times are not our times. I have lived eighty and one years, and never yet have I known an earnest prayer fall to the ground unheeded. In an unknown way, and when no one looked for it maybe, the answer came. A fuller, more satisfying answer than heart could conceive of, although it might be different to what was expected. Sister, You are going where, in his light, you will see light. You will learn there that in very faithfulness he has afflicted you. Go on, you strengthen me, said she. After David Hughes left that day, Eleanor was calm as one already dead and past mortal strife. Nest was awed by the change. No more passionate weeping, no more sorrow in the voice. Though it was low and weak, It sounded with a sweet composure. Her last look was a smile, her last word a blessing. Nest, tearless, streaked the poor warm body. She laid a plate with salt upon it on the breast, and lighted candles for the head and feet. It was an old Welsh custom, but when David Hughes came in, the sight carried him back to the time when he had seen the chapels in some old Catholic cathedral. "'Nest sat, gazing on the dead, with dry, hot eyes. "'She is dead,' said David solemnly. "'She died in Christ. "'Let us bless God, my child. "'He giveth, and he taketh away.' "'She's dead,' said Nest. "'My mother is dead. "'No one loves me now.' "'She spoke as if she were thinking aloud, "'for she did not look at David or ask him to be seated. "'No one loves you now?' No human creature, you mean? You are not yet fit to be spoken to concerning God's infinite love. I, like you, will speak of love for human creatures. I tell you, if no one loves you, it is time for you to begin to love. He spoke almost severely, if David Hughes ever did, for, to tell the truth, he was repelled by her hard rejection of her mother's tenderness, about which the neighbours had told him. Begin to love? said she, her eyes flashing. Have I not loved? Old man, you are dim and worn out. You do not remember what love is. She spoke with a scornful kind of pitying endurance. I will tell you how I have loved by telling you the change it has wrought in me. I was once the beautiful Nest Gwyn. I am now a cripple, a poor, one-faced cripple, old before my time. That is a change, at least people think so, She paused and then spoke lower. I tell you, David Hughes, that outward change is as nothing compared to the change in my nature caused by the love I have felt and have had rejected. I was gentle once, and if you spoke a tender word, my heart came towards you as natural as a little child goes to its mammy. I never spoke roughly, even to the dumb creatures, for I had a kind feeling for all. Of late, Since I loved old man I have been cruel in my thoughts to everyone. I have turned away from tenderness with bitter indifference. Listen, she spoke in a hoarse whisper. I will own it. I have spoken hardly to her, pointing towards the corpse. Her, who was ever patient and full of love for me. She did not know, she muttered. She has gone to her grave without knowing how I loved her. I had such a strange, mad, "'stubborn pride in me. "'Come back, mother, come back,' said she, "'crying wildly to the still solemn corpse. "'Come back as a spirit or a ghost. "'Only come back that I may tell you how I have loved you.' "'But the dead never come back.' The passionate adjuration ended in tears, the first she had shed. When they ceased or were absorbed into long quivering sobs, David knelt down nest did not kneel but bowed her head he prayed while his own tears fell fast he rose up they were both calm nest said he your love has been the love of youth passionate wild natural to youth henceforward you must love like christ without thought of self or wish for return you must take the sick and the weary to your heart and love them That love will lift you up above the storms of the world into God's own peace. The very vehemence of your nature proves that you are capable of this. I do not pity you. You do not require pity. You are powerful enough to trample down your own sorrows into a blessing for others. And to others you will be a blessing. I see it before you. I see in it the answer to your mother's prayer. The old man's dim eyes glittered as if they saw a vision. The firelight sprang up and glinted on his long white hair. Nest was awed as if she saw a prophet, and a prophet he was to her. When next David Hughes came to Penmorpha, he asked about Nest Gwyn, with a hovering doubt as to the answer. The infolk told him she was living still in the cottage, which was now her own. "'But would you believe it, David?' said Mrs. Thomas. "'She has gone and taken Mary Williams to live with her. "'You remember Mary Williams, I'm sure.' "'No, David Hughes remembered no Mary Williams at Penmortha. "'You must have seen her, for I know you've called at Thomas Griffiths, "'where the parish boarded her. "'You don't mean the half-witted woman, the poor crazy creature.' "'But I do,' said Mrs. Thomas.' I have seen her sure enough, but I never thought of learning her name, and Nest Gwynne has taken her to live with her. Yes, I thought I should surprise you. She might have had many a decent girl for companion. My own niece, her that is an orphan, would have gone and been thankful. Besides, Mary Williams is a regular savage at times. John Griffith says there were days when he used to beat her till she howled again, and yet she would not do as he told her. Nay, once, he says, if he had not seen her eyes glare like a wild beast from under the shadow of the table where she had taken shelter and got pretty quickly out of her way, she would have flown upon him and throttled him. He gave Nest fair warning of what she must expect, and he thinks some day she will be found murdered. David Hughes thought a while. How came Nest to take her to live with her? asked he. Well, Folks say John Griffiths did not give her enough to eat. Half wits they tell me, take more to feed them than others, and Eleanor Gwynne had given her oat cake and porridge a time and two, and most likely spoken kindly to her. You know Eleanor spoke kind to all. So some months ago, when John Griffiths had been beating her and keeping her without food to try and tame her, she ran away, and came to Ness Cottage in the dead of night, all shivering and starved for she did not know Eleanor was dead, and thought to meet with kindness from her, I've no doubt. And Nest remembered how her mother used to feed and comfort the poor idiot, and made her some gruel, and wrapped her up by the fire. And in the morning, when John Griffiths came in search of Mary, he found her with Nest, and Mary wailed so piteously at the sight of him, that Nest went to the parish officers, and offered to take her to board with her for the same money they gave to him. John says he was right glad to be off his bargain. David Hughes knew that there was a kind of remorse which sought relief in the performance of the most difficult and repugnant tasks. He thought he could understand how, in her bitter repentance for her conduct towards her mother, Nest had taken in the first helpless creature that came seeking shelter in her name. It was not what he would have chosen, but he knew it was God that had sent the poor wandering idiot there. He went to see Nest the next morning. As he drew near the cottage, it was summer time and the doors and windows were all open, he heard an angry, passionate kind of sound that was scarcely human. That sound prevented his approach from being heard, and standing at the threshold, he saw poor Mary Williams pacing backwards and forwards in some wild mood. Nest, cripple as she was, was walking with her, speaking low, soothing words till the pace was slackened, and time and breathing was given to put her arm around the crazy woman's neck, and soothe her by this tender caress into the quiet luxury of tears, tears which gave the hot brain relief. Then David Hughes came in. His first words as he took off his hat, standing on the lintel, were, The peace of God be upon this house. Neither he nor Nest recurred to the past those solemn recollections filled their minds. Before he went, all three knelt and prayed, for his nest told him, some mysterious influence of peace came over the poor half-wit's mind, when she heard the holy words of prayer, and often when she felt a paroxysm coming on, she would kneel and repeat a homily rapidly over, as if it were a charm to scare away the demon in possession. Sometimes, indeed, the control over herself requisite for this effort was enough to dispel the fluttering burst when david rose up to go he drew nest to the door you are not afraid my child asked he no she replied she is often very good and quiet when she is not i can bear it i shall see your face on earth no more said he god bless you he went on his way not many weeks after David Hughes was born to his grave. The doors of Ness' heart were opened, opened wide by the love she grew to feel for crazy Mary, so helpless, so friendless, so dependent upon her. Mary loved her back again, as a dumb animal loves its blind master. It was happiness enough to be near her. In general, she was only too glad to do what she was bidden by Ness, but there were times when Mary was overpowered by the glooms and fancies of her poor disordered brain. Fearful times. No one knew how fearful. On those days, Nest warned the little children who loved to come and play around her that they must not visit the house. The signal was a piece of white linen hung out of a side window. On those days, the sorrowful and sick waited in vain for the sound of Nest's lame approach but what she had to endure was known only to God, for she never complained. If she had given up the charge of Mary, or if the neighbours had risen out of love and care for her life to compel such a step, she knew what hard curses and blows, what starvation and misery would await the poor creature. She told of Mary's docility, and her affection, and her innocent little sayings but she never told the details of the occasional days of wild disorder and driving insanity. Nest grew old before her time in consequence of her accident. She knew that she was as old at fifty as many are at seventy. She knew it partly by the vividness with which the remembrance of the days of her youth came back to her mind, while the events of yesterday were dim and forgotten. She dreamt of her girlhood and youth, In sleep she was once more the beautiful Nest Gwyn, the admired of all beholders, the light-hearted girl beloved by her mother. Little circumstances connected with those early days, forgotten since the very time when they occurred, came back to her mind in her waking hours. She had a scar on the palm of her left hand, occasioned by the fall of a branch of a tree when she was a child. It had not pained her since the first two days after the accident, but now it began to hurt her slightly, and clear in her ears was the crackling sound of the treacherous rending wood. Distinct before her rose the presence of her mother, tenderly binding up the wound. With these remembrances came a longing desire to see the beautiful fatal well once more before her death. She had never gone so far since the day when, by her fall there she lost love and hope, and her bright, glad youth. She yearned to look upon its waters once again. This desire waxed as her life waxed. She told it to poor crazy Mary. Mary, said she, I want to go to the Rockwell. If you will help me, I can manage it. There used to be many a stone in the dull moor on which I could sit and rest. We will go tomorrow morning before folks are astir. Mary answered briskly, "Up, up, to the Rockwell; Mary will go, Mary will go." All day long she kept muttering to herself, "Mary will go." Nest had the happiest dream that night. Her mother stood beside her, not in the flesh, but in the bright glory of a blessed spirit; and Nest was no longer young, neither was she old; they reckoned not by days nor years where she was gone to dwell and her mother stretched out her arms to her with a calm, glad look of welcome. She awoke. The woodlark was singing in the near copse, the little birds were astir and rustling in their leafy nests. Nest arose and called Mary. The two set out through the quiet lane. They went along slowly and silently. With many a pause they crossed the broad, dull moor and carefully descended the sloping stones, On which no trace remained of the hundreds of feet that had passed over them, since Nest was last there. The clear water sparkled and quivered in the early sunlight. The shadows of the birch leaves were stirred on the ground. The ferns. Nest could have believed that they were the very same ferns which he had seen thirty years before, hung wet and dripping where the water overflowed. A thrush chanted matins from a holly-bush near, and the running stream made a low, soft, sweet accompaniment. All was the same. Nature was as fresh and young as ever. It might have been yesterday that Edward Williams had overtaken her and told her his love. The thought of his words, his handsome looks, he was a grey, hard-featured man by this time. And then she recalled the fatal wintry morning when joy and youth had fled, and as she remembered that faintness of pain, a new, a real faintness, no echo of the memory, came over her. She leant her back against a rock without a moan or sigh and died. She found immortality by the wellside instead of her fragile, perishing youth. She was so calm and placid that Mary, who had been dipping her fingers in the well to see the waters drop off in the gleaming sunlight, thought she was asleep and for some time continued her amusement in silence. At last she turned and said, "Mary is tired. Mary wants to go home." Nest did not speak, though the idiot repeated her plaintive words. She stood and looked till a strange terror came over her, a terror too mysterious to be borne. Mistress Wake, Mistress Wake, she said, wildly shaking the form, but Nest did not awake, and the first person who came to the well that morning found Crazy Mary sitting awestruck by the poor dead nest. They had to get the poor creature away by force before they could remove the body. Mary is in Tremadoc workhouse. They treat her pretty kindly and in general she is good and tractable. Occasionally the old paroxysms come on and for a time she is unmanageable but someone thought of speaking to her about Nest. She stood arrested at the name, and since then it is astonishing to see what effort she makes to curb her insanity, and when the dread time is past, she creeps up to the matron and says, Mary has tried to be good, will God let her go to Nest now? End of the Well of Penmorpha by Elizabeth Gaskell Read by Phil Benson